You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the latest episode of the From the Hack Curling Podcast. Leading off this week's episode is Pierre Charette, coach of the Women's World Champions Team Tiranzoni. Followed by Laura Walker and Kurt Myers who joined me to discuss their decision to focus strictly on mixed doubles next season. And finally I'm joined by Mike Harris who is off to Las Vegas to cover the Men's World Championships. My first guest this week is Canadian Curling Hall of Famer Pierre Charette, fresh off coaching Team Tiranzoni of Switzerland to the team's third consecutive World Championship title. Pierre, before talking to you about the World Women's Championship, I want to take you back to the Olympics in Beijing where Team Tiranzoni, the team that you've coached uh, for the past uh, few seasons, went undefeated in the round robin only to lose two straight games in the playoffs to miss the podium. How did you and the team go about processing those losses in a way that you could be in a proper mindset just a few weeks later to defend your world championship title? It, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Like Beijing was a uh, very, very heartbreaking. Uh, I think we were the best team there. Uh, uh, I just don't like the format that uh, the five and four teams are treated the same way as an eight and one team after round Robin. Uh, you know, curling is the only sport at the Olympics where, uh, where the round robin, every team plays every team. So the round robin should be worth more than just uh, in hockey when they have different pools and they don't play everybody. I understand that then you one plays four and all this, but I, I, I strongly think that the, the format of the Olympics should be at least a page format where the top two teams play, the winner either gets gold, the other one gets silver, or advances to the gold medal game at least. And uh, and then the five and four team play for bronze. I mean, they, that would have been the logical thing. But, hey, that, that's not the way it is. We lost a tough game against Japan. Uh, uh, it was one of those games where, uh, uh, you know, uh, Japan made uh, some fantastic shots in the end of the game. Can't take anything away from them, but uh the early part of the game they, they they made a couple of shots that weren't exactly called made like they were called like a little bit in pool when you make a few lucky ones but hey it, it, i guess it wasn't meant to be and then the bronze medal game well i think they they still all uh they still all had that uh you know that bad taste in their mouth from the night before and uh, unfortunately we didn't play a very good game and uh, it is what it is but what happened after is pretty extraordinary, uh, Frank. The, um, we went directly to the airport. Like we, we, we went to our apartments, packed up, went to the airport, waited five hours to grab a, a, a 5 a.m. flight back to Zurich. Uh, then the girls, uh, you know, 10-hour flight. Then they slept in their bed for one night and then, uh, and then jumped in a car, four-and-a-half-hour drive to Geneva, to try to defend their champion, their 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 uh, their Swiss championship, they were not going to the Worlds if they didn't go and and compete the very next day after they came back from the Olympics. Uh, Team de Cruz did the same thing; they went zero and five at the Swiss championship. That's how much how much uh, the Olympics took out of them, and that they got nothing left in the tank. Our team was devastated; they were tired; they were. Uh, there wasn't much energy. They were just on fumes and played eight games in less than 72 hours and managed to win. 
to me, that's the that was the extraordinary feat of all. Is they really wanted to defend their two-time world world title, and it was the only way they could do it was to come and and jump into that uh, Swiss Championship, uh, you know, right off the plane. So that that to me that was pretty extraordinary. Then they got about two weeks rest. Uh, went to Calgary uh, uh, five six days before the world started. Uh, at, uh, I met with one of our sponsors there and, um, and practiced for two days. Had a couple of nice dinners, relaxing evenings, and then we flew to Prince George on the on Thursday uh, evening, and then practiced on Friday. The ice was great, and then we had the you know we had the the tough the tough start with uh, Scotland, Sweden, and Canada back to back and played amazing in all three games. And I knew there that we would be very, very hard to beat. Alina was, uh, was on fire. I mean, she shot 90% for 14 games at a world championship. That's, that's unheard of. Um, she had the highest average of any player. Like not, there's no lead that shot 90%. Now you just provided me with an excellent segue, Pierre. Is it fair to say that Alina Petz is right up there at, or near the top of the list of the best shot makers in the women's game right now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that the only thing with, with Alina is that is not, she's not like uh, super consistent, but most of the time she plays great. And when she does, then, then you know the team has to uh, has to make sure that we leave her something because they know she's not going to miss. I mean, and I, I all my career I always said I'd rather have uh, a skip that can be uh, you know maybe a little inconsistent, but but at least get hot once in a while so we can win. I always said, hey guys, our skip is playing well this weekend. Let's make sure we win because it doesn't always happen. But she was on fire there. She. She made some skip deuces out of nothing. Unbelievable how many times that happened. And, 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 and especially early in the week. And then the team started to play great. Like Silvano played great. Esther was absolutely dominant. Uh, Melanie was, you know, was, was, was playing good too. So uh, even, uh, even uh, Carol, our fifth player, got into seven games. Because uh, some of the girls were under the weather a little bit, and we wanted to make sure we kept energy until the un- until the playoffs. So she got into seven games, and she curled eighty eight percent. So you know that was we were we, we were on uh, the team was was at a, at their best, and it was nice to see. It, it takes a little bit of the sting out of, of Beijing. Pierre, there were a handful of countries, uh, not unlike Switzerland, where the national championships uh, this year either conflicted with the Olympics or took place right after the conclusion of the Games in Beijing. And I'll be honest, Pierre, I just don't get the reasoning for it. Yeah, well, it's just the way it is. Um, you know, like uh, sometimes it's scheduling, sometimes it's uh, you have people uh, uh, ahead of these associations that some even feel that it has to be a different team, so to give them experience and, and stuff like that. But look at look at the case in, in Scotland. Like Moat is infuriate, infuriated because he didn't get a chance to to go to the Worlds. I mean, he wants to be at the Worlds. I don't know about Team Muir, Muirhead, uh, uh, but I, you know, being the competitor she is, I'm sure she would have wanted to to go to the World Championship too. But to have that, you know, they scheduled it at the same time as the Olympics. I mean, they couldn't play in it. In Canada, was a little different. 
Uh, they let uh, they let Gucci in as a as a wild card, which I think was the right thing to do. And um, and now they're going to be arrested, and and I'm sure they're going to be uh, wanting to uh, to get a, a world title back to Canada that's been eluding uh, uh, for the last few years. Pierre, you were just mentioning how front-loaded the schedule was for Team Tiranzoni at the Worlds. Is it fair to say that the front-loaded schedule playing against Sweden and Canada early on in the week in the round robin may have been, pardon me, may have been a good thing for the team as it forced them to get their focus really quickly once they arrived in Prince George, especially after the disappointment in Beijing and then having to compete in a national championship just to qualify for the Worlds and having to do so basically jet-lagged and on fumes after playing all those games in Beijing? Uh, it, it it might have been maybe you know looking back maybe but uh it's funny but the, the last uh uh you know the last two european championship for example they always put us against uh Asselborg in the first or second game or against uh, i don't i don't know why it is i think it might be uh to show those games on tv early in the event to create interest but uh, I think it's more that TV rules. I think they they did the same at the uh, here in, uh, in Prince George. Uh, you know, Anderson. Uh, the, you know, I think it's not a coincidence that we played Anderson on Sunday night and uh, that we played uh, we played Sweden on Saturday. I mean, uh, of the first weekend, they wanted people to come out and and uh, you know get into the swing of things for for a team, honestly. I think every event should be seated and, and, the, and, the, and the top seeds should play each other at the end of the week. Like the problem with playing those, those teams early is that if you lose to both, then you're guaranteed you're not going to make get the bye to the playoffs or whatever because you're, then you're two games behind. They have to lose three. By winning them both, then those teams had to lose three for us to fall behind them. So we were pretty well assured to get the bye to the semis after four or five games, unless, you know, unless we lose to teams we're not supposed to lose to. So it worked out, but I mean, it could have made it, like you said, it could have made it really difficult if you lose to those teams right off the bat. And that's a little bit of what happened to Canada, I think. And then Canada, you know, they'd play, uh, they, they, they played a couple of good games and had a rough game against us. And then, and then they lost another one that they should have, you know, to uh, to Korea. And it, it, so it's uh, it made their their uh, their ride to the to the to the medal rounds a little more uh, difficult and maybe lose confidence a few times. You know, we we played well early in the week, and honestly, we kept the the, the medal the the pedal on the medal for the for the whole week. We just and then we rode off. Uh, off Alina's uh, performance and just made sure that uh, we got some rest. Like I said, Carol got into seven games. She actually played three complete games. So we were well rested when we got to the playoffs. And it's a good thing we were because the two teams we played against, Sweden and Korea, uh, put up really good opposition. They, they played really good against us too in the semis, but we were able to keep control and uh, Alina came through for us again. From a coaching perspective, Pierre, what role do you play once you arrive at an event like the World Championship for Team Tiranzoni? And seeing all the success they've had at the Worlds uh, the last two times they had played it, uh, is it a case of you trying to stay out of their way and letting them take care of business? Or are you very active from a day-to-day basis, helping them plan for their different games and for their strategies as the week goes along? I really try to prepare the team going into each game. 
Like we do a lot of scouting. I'll go watch. Uh, I'll go watch other games when our team's not playing. In case the ice conditions change, we uh, we track the rocks that the other teams throw. We uh, the, this this event for the first time. I went to match the rocks with Carol every night. Uh, we really the girls really wanted to win this, so we we uh, we uh, we put every effort. We do when we do our pregame, we go over the strategy we should use against this team we're going to play now. Um, uh, we really work out, work really hard on the draw to the button, the pregame to try to win the hammer because um, it's important and, and we take pride in it. We always finish top two and, uh, you know, for draw to the button is at every event we play because we practice it quite, quite a bit. Uh, and then, and then we, we, we find out be- before each game how everybody feels. Because if one of the players is somehow, I don't know, is not feeling great or is really nervous that morning, then when the other three players know that, you, you can support that fourth person and make sure that uh, that she stays in the game or whatever. And it's better than hiding your feelings or your emotions and, and play back. So I think over over time that, that we really uh, uh, evolved as a team. The girls are really tight and they're, they're, uh, they're honest and they're, when they share how they feel and stuff like that. So, yeah. So, uh, basically, that's what it is. Now, there are some people, Pierre, that would argue that it's not necessarily important for the players uh, to be on a team to be friends in this day and age. But from what you just mentioned about Team Tiranzoni, is it fair to say that you believe that it's important to have a friendly atmosphere on a team if you're going to go ahead and achieve all the goals that most of these teams have for themselves once they start a cycle and build towards the Nationals and then the uh, World Championships every year and then ultimately the Olympic Games? Oh, I, I'm definitely of the uh, of the camp that says you have to get along. I mean, uh, it's basically your family for seven, eight months of the year. I mean, the teams that play lots, they might be gone, uh, you know, 17, 18 weeks on, on a normal uh, non-COVID season. So you better get along with those people because you because you really live with them. So uh, I I totally disagree that you can make a team of just all stars. That are that, that know, don't know each other, don't don't uh, you know, and just throw them on the ice. It might work, but I I I think the chances of success is not very good. I think all the new teams that you're going to see uh, that that are you know that have already been formed for next year or, or the changes you're going to you're going to get. I'm sure these guys are are you know the Canadian guys. They all know each other, so I'm sure that if, uh, you know when. Uh, when a when a team like uh, Dunstone joins up with uh, BJ Newfell, well, they played against each other for ten years. You know, maybe not ten in Matt's uh, case, but maybe five, six years. So, you know the character of the guys. You 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 sat with them to have a beer after a game or at a competition or something like that, or you've seen them perform. So, you you you're not a hundred percent sure it's going to click. Uh, you know, uh, chemistry wise. But you have a good idea. I think some players uh, would not play with some other players. They say, I couldn't play with this player, let's say, because of his character or whatever. But most of them have, have an idea. That they're not sure it's going to work, but they're trying to find, uh, you know, the first year of the quadrennial is where you try to find the, the right match. You know, yeah. these teams, I'm sure, haven't committed to four years. They say, hey, let's try this new team. And you might see some adjustments after the first year. But uh uh, it's a, it, it's to me it's a it's the fun time of curling. Uh, we're going in a players championship with all these 
teams playing with their old squad, but uh, they're all but all their new guys are on other teams and stuff and gals, so it's going to be cool. Pierre, how impressive is it that Team Tiranzoni can win three straight world championships, considering the parity in the women's game these days? Well, I I think it's uh, you know they 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 created curling history. I mean, it's uh, uh, like you said, and it's never been. There's never been more parity than there is now. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, there was the COVID year in there. And if, if, the, uh, if it, it would not have been canceled, we would not have won because we weren't the team going. So it was Team Stern that was, uh, that was actually uh, in Prince George when they were told to turn back. And that was so unfortunate for them. But uh, things being what they are, we did win the last three uh, world championship so i should say i shouldn't say we i should say they they did uh you know switzerland's won seven of the last 10 which i think that's amazing uh you know for there's only four 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 uh, teams that are in the in a swiss program really and for those teams to to uh you know to to be able to to perform at at, at that level you know i i'm talking about felcher uh I'm talking about uh, Marion Hot and uh, even Alina, uh, you know, uh, five, six years back, she won one there too. So I don't know. They're, they worked so hard. I'm not surprised at the success. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, they, it's just, it's just a, a great story, and, I, and I'm so happy for them. It, it, like I said, it helps uh, yield some of the wounds of Beijing. And finally, Pierre, aside from uh, your work coaching Team Tiranzoni, you remain very involved with the Grand Slam of Curling. Now, the Players' Championship is scheduled for Toronto in a couple of weeks. What can fans expect at that event? Oh, I, I'm I'm so looking for, forward to the, to the players, Frank. You uh, you have no idea. I mean, we have we have uh, 16 of the best 17 teams on both men and women that accepted the invitation. Kovaleva was not invited because of the U- Ukraine-Russia conflict. And on the men's side, Team uh, Wallstad, who will be playing in uh, in uh, Vegas, they just figured it was too much for them to be away, uh, you know, a total of three weeks almost if you had the two, the two events together. But everybody else is there. So we also have a... A couple of new teams are, are going to play their first their first uh, Grand Slam. Team Zacharias, that good young team that's going to be joined by by Jennifer Jones next year, and they're actually going to play Tiranzoni in the first game. So that that should be that's going to be a highlight uh, of day one. And you got Jens, who's uh, from Germany. She was thrilled. To, she she's thrilled to to play in her first Slam. So they're going to be there. On the men's side, you got Joel Retornas from Italy. Who was supposed to do his slam uh, debut at uh, at uh, at, uh, at the Canadian Open in January? That was canceled, so he was a little uh, disappointed with that. But when when he got the invite for the players, he's ecstatic. He's he was he was happier to play in the slam than to go to the worlds. Believe it or not, he said, "I've been waiting for this for years." So you'll see, they're a really good team. Uh, the, the the winner of the mixed doubles is is his vice. The mixed double, uh, uh, you know, at the Olympics. So that's a that's a really good fun team to watch. And there's this young team from Switzerland, Team Osley. They uh, they gave Schwaller everything he had, uh, uh, a, a big fight to to uh, to win Switzerland, and, and they they earned enough points to make it into the top 16. 
and they're the up-and-coming team in Switzerland. Four young guys, dedicated. Almost every time we went to practice, they were on a on another sheet practicing too. They're in the program. They're a very exciting team to watch. Their second throw is probably the the most weight in the game. He throws a five-second peel. Um, so I think uh, I think the fans are going to be uh, are going to be thrilled to see these new teams. And of course, all the regulars are there: the Gushus, the Kuis, the Moat, the Adines, the Homan, Fleury, Asselborg, Muirhead, Tiranzoni, Kim, name them. They're all there. So uh, the people, uh, the the fans from Toronto are going to be in for a treat. It's so good to be back at Madame, which I think is, uh, you know becoming a, a famous curling venue. Uh, players love to go there. The hotel is, you know, a two-minute walk beside it. Uh, and it's and the Players' Championship is special in the sense that it's almost like a reward for, for you to have to performing and having a good year. And, and, and it's like the end of the year and the players, they spend, you know, they, they, they get to mingle and, and, and share a drink and stuff. And hopefully... Uh, with the restrictions being, uh, you know, going away slowly, that the people, uh, the players, will be able to do that again, and, uh, and and yeah, and play play for one last time with their old uh, old teammates. My next guests are Laura Walker and Kirk Myers, who recently announced that they were stepping away from women's and men's competition next season to focus on mixed doubles. Lauren Kirk, uh, the two of you were each on one of the top teams in the country in the current cycle. Laura, of course, on a women's team, skipping your own team, and, and Kirk playing second for Team Dunstone. Can you take me through the process and the timeline of how the two of you first started chatting about the next cycle and about potentially focusing strictly on mixed doubles? Yeah, the decision for me, I'd say, started um, you know in this season when things were so busy for uh, for our family with both Jeff and I trying to curl at the top level in men's and women's, but also knowing um, that I really didn't want to give up mixed doubles. I really enjoyed playing mixed doubles. So adding that into my schedule uh, made things even more hectic. So as the year kind of went on, um, that thought of maybe some time away from the women's game started to creep into my mind a little bit. Um, I'll be honest, I'm not sure if I ever really believed that I could pull the plug on it. But um, as we kind of got to the end of the season, uh, a couple weeks after the Scotties, I met with my team and I, I just let them know to to move forward without me because that's kind of the, the way that my heart was leaning. And it was going to take a lot for me to be uh, pulled back into the women's game at that point. And so I was uh, just kind of waiting on Kirk, <laughs> waiting till the briar was over. I kind of knew... Um, you know, in my gut, what I, I wanted to do, it was just a matter of how much I was going to get to play with Kirk and how much I maybe have to pull other partners in or kind of figure that out um, on my own. So for me, it started a while ago and Kirk and I have always joked with each other about, um, you know, why don't we just play this thing? And, and I think we've always been half serious and uh, somehow we both landed in this place, which I'm really grateful for. Yeah, you know, I think it was it was kind of similar to to kind of what uh, what Laura was saying. You know, it's uh, uh, something we kind of joked about and talked about kind of over the years, and and you know, we kind of saw the way the the, the discipline was going, and maybe there was an opportunity to do that down the road, and and then 
And then when uh, when Maddie kind of let us know that he was going to take another opportunity to go home and, and play in his home province of Manitoba, which, uh, you know, we fully support him on. And um, it was very exciting for him. It was kind of one of those moments that you go, you know what, this this is the right time. And um, like, I think it was the same thing as Laura's. I don't I didn't know for sure if I could ever actually pull the plug on on playing men's. And, and like I said, when when Maddie made that that uh, that decision to, to play, go play at home, it kind of cleared uh cleared my mind a little bit to know you know what this is the right time laura's ready to do it i'm ready to do it let's let's take a jump and and see what we can do in the mixed doubles game and i think um uh, i think we're you know or i i am at least and i think laura is too we're 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 quite happy and quite uh satisfied with our decision and kind of excited for moving forward because i think there's going to be lots of opportunities in the discipline and i'm really excited to see what we can do as a group kind of together if we can focus on it you know so much of our time is spent on developing our men's and women's teams over the years and and now we're going to have all summer all winter to think about how we can do better in the mixed doubles game whether that's strategy you know whether that's shot making whether that's just little little team dynamic things more training camps more more uh, competition so I think we're really excited about what we can about what the future looks like in terms of what we can do on the ice and then kind of how good we can be so it'll be it'll be interesting to to kind of see how that plays out in the next year now without getting into specific numbers is it fair to say that there was also an important financial consideration component to your decision to focus on mixed doubles especially since the money available in mixed doubles is nowhere near what it is at the elite levels in men's and women's play there was, but I, I think it kind of goes both ways. You know, for um, me with a second child on the way, it's really difficult for me to actually work and play women's and play mixed doubles and stay home with our kids and uh, allow Jeff to kind of pursue his dream as well. So um, for me, it was actually it was a bit financial, but um, allowed me more time to maybe focus on on work. But then there's the other side of things too, where uh, mixed doubles has. A slightly, you know, easier schedule as far as a lot of the events um, are a bit closer to home for us. There's only two of us, not four of us, so we can play for a a little bit cheaper. So Kirk and I really believe that we can kind of be a driving force behind maybe bringing a little bit of of money into this sport. And so that was a consideration for us. But um, for me, it it might not be the, the kind of consideration, I guess, that you were thinking that it was. Kirk, Lord, just touch on something interesting. The two of you are relatively well-known curlers, having competed in men's and women's at the national level and in slams, and you're also one of the better-known mixed doubles teams in Canada. Do you believe or do you view yourselves as perhaps torchbearers for the mixed doubles discipline in Canada and perhaps play a role in its growth and evolution in the coming cycle? Yeah, I think to, to some degree, for sure, Frank. I mean, uh, it's it's one of those things. There hasn't been a lot of call it that the you know elite players that have focused on this. And and Laura and I have been lucky enough to be on those those kind of teams in the last few years. So I think absolutely, it's kind of you know whether or not we're we're trailblazers in that in that respect or not. I think I think to some degree, it's gonna it's gonna become that right. Uh, we we kind of did it because you know we're excited about mixed doubles. We're excited about where the discipline's going, about the opportunities that may come our come our way or come the sports way in the next few years. And it was just a good time in our lives to do it. But I think with that, it's going to kind of come into, uh, into um, light about the opportunities that you can have and, and player young players coming up don't necessarily need to get on a top men's or women's team. Maybe they can focus on mixed doubles. And um, I think if, if, if Canada wants to become, you know, one of the best uh, 
mixed doubles countries in the world, we're going to need some of our uh, top athletes to commit to it. So I think that was a byproduct product of, of what Laura and I did here. Um, but I think, uh, I hope anyways, it, it kind of gets uh, shed some light on it and maybe make some people think, hmm, maybe that is an opportunity for me or an avenue I can go versus just strictly the men's or women's side. Laurie, a few minutes ago, uh, Kirk mentioned that focusing on mixed doubles will allow the two of you to practice more on the types of shots and strategies that are often necessary in mixed doubles. However, there are still many people that will argue that mixed doubles is little more than a shot maker's or a thrower's discipline, that you don't really need to play or practice mixed doubles much to be successful at it. All you really need is to go to an event, get a good feel for the ice, and then make good shots once the games start that theory has played out a little bit in Canada I mean uh, John Morris and uh, Caitlin Laws won a gold medal back in 2018 uh, at the Olympics having not played much together ahead of time and then I believe at the last uh, national championship it was uh, Kerry Anderson and uh, Brad Gushu in the bubble last year winning a national championship in what I believe was their first event together now without giving away any mixed double secrets here what will all this additional time to focus on mixed doubles really mean to the two of you from a competitive advantage perspective yeah i think you just said it there i i'm one of those believers that um you know mixed doubles is a thrower's game and you can bring two really good players together and have them be successful but i think it's really difficult to find um that long-term success as a team or maybe uh getting into really high pressure situations that they've never been through together those sorts of things that's where you need to have uh, a team that's committed to each other and, and plays the discipline a little bit. Um, I think our best players in the country can absolutely still enter a mixed doubles event and get on a roll and, um, and win the event and do really well. I'm just not sure how long um, that would last if, if we're asking them to, to do it on the long term. But I think what Kirk and I mean is that we often have to, if we want to try something new, we want to try something new strategically. We would like to, um, you know, tweak something here or there. We are really only getting the opportunity to test it out in competition. And for us, we're playing, you know, maybe three events a year. And uh, if, if you're testing things out in one of your three events and you happen to not qualify or not do very well, um, it can really, really hurt you as far as your points go and uh, the, the earnings that you can have and those sorts of things. So we're just looking forward to being able to actually have some more dedicated practice time to try new things, to maybe take a look at what the rest of the world is doing because the rest of the world um, is really good at this discipline and only getting better. So it just gives us the opportunity to maybe watch us some games, scout a little bit more, try those things ourselves without having to waste, you know, our, our two to three events a year trying those things out. Kirk, have the two of you discussed what kind of schedule you might play next year? Are you sticking to major events in Canada? Will you be playing smaller regional events in Western Canada, perhaps? Or will you even be traveling overseas to compete against some of the top teams from different countries? Yeah, you know, we've touched on it a little bit. And that was, you know, one of the things we, we discussed before we committed to it is, is you know, what, what can each person uh, commit to the team going forward, just like you have those conversations in men's and women's. And, um, you know, I think, uh, obviously, we're, we're going to hit the, the big, the biggest spiels we can, the bigger, the bigger, the better we can. Uh, so any, any of the big spiels that are in Canada, United States or Europe, we're going to try to hit. Um, that being said, uh, I think time will tell what, what kind of opportunities are there. But if, um, if the stars align, and we can maybe play a, a bigger event in Europe, or, or two of them over there in Europe and, and, you know, we have the funds to do it and, and, and family and sk- work schedules allow it. I think we'd like to do that. Cause I, I mean, we see, um, you know, a, a lot of the European teams and the, and the Asian teams come over to Canada and the men's and women's game to get better. And I think um, to some degree, the mixed doubles teams need to go over to Europe uh, to get better as well on Canada's front 
in terms of Canada anyway. So I think that's something that's in the cards for us. We haven't necessarily talked in details and that probably won't come for a few months yet until we see the sched- the new new season schedule come out. But uh, um, I think all those things are kind of on the table. And, and now because we have the time, um, you know, to do that without the men's and women's, we can really, you know, pick and choose what, 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 what we want to play in and, and go and do it and do it right. And finally, Lauren Kirk, uh, because we probably won't get to chat again until early next season because the off season is coming soon for the for the two of you and for the podcast. I thought I'd end this interview by uh, going off uh, off the charts a little bit here, not off the charts, but uh, maybe a step away from curling a little bit. And uh, first and foremost, uh, Laura, uh, your son Liam has been a bit of a rock star in the crowds uh, in the in the crowd in the bubble last year, and uh, again at the uh, Briar this year. Uh, can you give us uh, a little bit of an update on little Liam and how he's doing? He is good. He um, He's currently set up in front of the TV because I lost my child care for today. So he's been a good boy so far. He's been quiet out there, but he's really good. He's uh, a lot of fun right now, just learning new things um, every day. And he changes so much every day. And I think that's part of you know what drove me towards this decision was um, not just having him now, but uh, there'll be another little one at the end of July. And so I'll get to spend a little bit more time with them without giving up my dreams and, and giving up what I love. So I'm really looking forward to, to the next year and beyond and, and how that looks in all the areas of my life. And Kirk, what most of the audience likely does not know is that I came out of a semi-retirement this year to teach at a local elementary school. And a few weeks ago, your partner Claire was nice enough to join my class via Zoom to discuss her career as a sports reporter and about calling the aerials competition in freestyle skiing for the CBC at the recent Olympics in Beijing. We may have even seen some photos and heard some stories about your dog, Hank. How is he doing and how is he dealing with your busy schedules these past few months? <laughs> you know what? I think Hank's doing just fine. Claire's, uh, Claire's uh, out and about covering March Madness right now. So uh, Hank's at a, at a dog sitter, but we get pictures every day. And uh, um, he's happy he's going to be hanging out with the other dogs. So I, I haven't seen Hank in over a month. So I'm looking forward to getting to see him pretty in a, in a few days here. But uh, uh, I don't think Hank misses me at all, if I'm being completely honest with you. And my final guest this week is 1998 Olympic silver medalist Mike Harris, who joined me to preview the 2022 Men's World Championship from Las Vegas, where he will be part of the broadcast team for the World Curling Federation. Uh, Mike, before we move on to speak uh, specifically about the Men's Worlds, I'd like to hear your take on how impressive it was to watch Team Gushu win the Briar while playing three-legged in not one, but three playoff games against some of the other top teams in Canada. Yeah, it, it's incredibly difficult to win one, as you, as you said, Frank. And and uh, the fact, the two things. I mean, one is one is it's obviously extremely high pressure uh, for for all the teams involved. And you know, when you're spreading the uh, the that challenge among four, it seems easier than three to me, just kind of uh, as an outside observer. But uh, I just thought it was amazing how well they played. Um, but more so the endurance, you know, I said that to do to, to, to win one game is, is, is doable, but you know, to, to sweep that many stones, you know, Brett Gallant basically swept every rock, including his own, you know, for th- three consecutive games. If you watch, uh, most of the action and, and, uh, really, really, really impressive to just to see how well the team held up, you know, shot making is not that much of an issue when it comes to any one of the players playing different position particularly as a particularly team gushu but uh yeah the endurance required and and uh, just the i guess it's kind of one of those things when when you're when you're not feeling well you always see the occasion but in this case all three of them had to do it and uh yeah it was it was it was impressive i have to say 
Mike, you're shortly heading to uh, Las Vegas uh, to call some of the action for the World Curling Federation uh, during the World Men's Championship. Five of the 13 teams headed to Vegas for Worlds also competed at the Olympics earlier this season. Now, we've heard a lot of talk over the years that it is difficult for teams to peak several times in a single season. That said, do you think teams like Sweden, Canada, Norway, and others who competed in Beijing will have a competitive advantage in Vegas, or do you think that the teams that have been able to prepare themselves specifically to peak for the Worlds might be fresher come uh, the start of action in Las Vegas? I don't, I don't know it's going to make a huge impact to be honest i mean the, the person the team with the most uh potential energy loss if you want to call it that would certainly be gushu um but you have to remember he only played 20 some odd games before the trials as well so uh you know it's not like he's been you know not like this is game 150 for them either so you know they're 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 they should be relatively fresh considering how late in the season it is they've you know, basically played, uh, you know, four events before Christmas, including the trials. They played the Olympics in February and they played the Briar. So, you know, how many games does that add, add those up? But it doesn't, you know, it's not their typical 150 game season that they would have experienced, uh, you know, a few years ago. So uh, I don't think uh, fatigue should be that much of a factor. Um, yeah. And I think just their, their experience uh, will bode very well for them. I, you know, it, you know, if the Olympics, you think it was 1A, 1B, 1C with Moet, Gadeen, and and Gushu. Now we're just kind of 1A, 1B, and then you've got a, a series of other teams, you know, kind of playing for those last four playoff spots. So I would say the field's a little softer uh, without Moet, you know, compared to the Olympics. And with an extra, an extra couple of playoff spots up for grabs, um, you know, the playoffs shouldn't be that big of an, an issue for for Team Canada or, or any of the team, or, you know, Team Sweden or Team Canada, in, in fact. So um, I would say it's a softer field. And, uh, you know, I think I think uh, once playoffs roll around, you know, the cream, I expect the cream to, to, to rise to the top. And I said, no, no two better teams than, than Gushu and Adin. So uh, they, they would be my, my two fairly heavy favorites, even though they would have played, uh, you know, as much or more than anyone else. You just mentioned Team Owen of Scotland in your last answer, Mike. What did you make of the recent situation in Scotland where the national championship conflicted with the Olympics and led to Team Patterson being selected to represent Scotland in Vegas after they won the national championship? If his social media posts were any indication, Bruce Mowat and his team were certainly not happy with the decision. Well, I think when, when the old regime kind of left and uh, we had the new regime kind of take over, uh, <laughs> The athletes in the program were hoping that it would allow for them to solve problems on the ice, and clearly nothing has changed. That's all I will say to that. So, you know, I understand Mowat's frustration. I understand Eve Muirhead uh, did not fight the nomination. You know, you know, Morris T. Morrison won the right to represent Scotland in the women's. And Eve rightfully and smartly, I think, just said, no, we'll, we'll kind of <laughs> rest on our gold medal and move on. And, but, but Mawad had a uh, different uh, motivation. They're, they're here for the Worlds. They've got the, the Players' Championship, et cetera, moving on. So, you know, they, they wanted to play. And, and how it got to a week or so after the Olympics, before anything was decided on paper, so that there were, were – a they did have the ability to object all this like how that happens is beyond me how they didn't have this sorted out four years ago is absolutely insane in my in my view so 
blame the players. You can't blame the players in a situation. It's all, it all falls back to the administration and how, how they could even let this happen is absolute joke. And, and how frustrating would it be to be an athlete in that program? Um, it just, you know, something's never changed. Like in four years ago, it was the whole controversy surrounding, you know, David Murdoch, Tom Brewster and Kyle Smith, who was going to go to the Olympics and it got solved in a boardroom. And this is another one where it ended up going to a boardroom. So I have no, I have no malice towards any of the players. Um, you know, if you're Maui, of course you want to have a chance to go. If you're Ross Patterson, you won the Scottish. He should, you know, he has every right to go as well. How about you let them play for it? Play two out of three. Like who, why, why was that not an option? You know what I mean? Like, how is this being solved in the boardroom? That makes absolutely no sense to me. So uh, it's an unfortunate thing for the athlete and extremely frustrating to know uh, how, how discouraging it would have been to, to, for, for both teams to suffer through uh, a series of protests. You know, at one point, Patterson was named the team, then Mawat protested, then Mawat was named the team, and then they had to counter-sue or counter-protest, and then Patterson got named the team again. So imagine those eight athletes, what they're going through. And they're all good friends, by the way. You know, Hammy and Ross Patterson, Hammy McMillan Jr. and Ross Patterson are our best friends. And after Ross won the Scottish, the person he was out having a beer with was Hammy off Team Mowat. So these guys are all buddies, and they're having to go through this administrative bullshit in order to try to figure out how to go to the world. So it's an absolute joke. I feel bad for them. Now, Team Adina of Sweden will be in Vegas looking for a fourth straight world championship title a few weeks after winning gold at the Olympics in Beijing. You've watched this team a lot over the years, Mike. How do they seemingly always find that extra gear when they get to Worlds or the Olympics? I don't know the answer. Uh, I wish I did because whatever they do, they do it, they do it perfectly. At, at, and this is not just a recent thing. I think all of the Swedish teams for years have been really, really good at being being ready at the World Championship and the Olympics. Uh, so um, they, they don't lose to teams they shouldn't lose to. They're really, really good at that. They're, they're, they're extremely well coached. And they do peak. You know, we, you talked briefly about, you know, Canadian teams having to peak two or three times in an Olympic year. And this is a case where Nagusha had to peak for the trials, peak for the Olympics, peak for the world, peak for the Briar four times, in fact, if you look at it that way. So... You know, they do a very good job at managing the way they do business, um, Sweden does, as a, as a general statement. So I think they're very good at that. Uh, if there was a magic answer, I think all of the other countries would like that answer. <laughs> but I've noticed over the, over the past several years uh, that they're, they're, just, they're just very, very well prepared. They have a, a, a routine at all these events. They're, you know, they're, they're the rink hour, hour and a half beforehand sitting in the stands talking about strategy and what's going on and 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 it sounds simple um but they just do they just do a very good job and they're better at it than most i mean obviously they're a fantastic team um and they don't put the emphasis on the slams maybe that some of the canadian teams do but because they know they're going to get into the worlds and they know they're going to get to to the olympics so there's there's definitely uh less pressure kind of building towards the big events maybe than some of the canadian teams have but uh they're they're just uh they do. They do a great job, and I, I and I wish I had the answer, uh, Frank. But uh, <laughs> it's uh, so far it's a Swedish a Swedish secret. As you mentioned, Mike, Sweden and Canada are seen by most as the two favorites heading into the Worlds in Scotland. Then there's, of course, Team Schwaller and Team Patterson, who are solid slam-level teams representing Switzerland and Scotland. But that leaves a couple of playoff spots open. What other teams should we be looking at as potential playoff teams in Vegas? 
Yeah, I, I think there's I think there's four or five teams kind of I call them the, as you say tier two that are not that big of a surprise. I think as you say you got Scotland. Um, the U.S. is pretty good. Corey Dropkins' young team is is a decent team. The Swiss, obviously, Schwaller, they've had some had some success. So uh, there's three there. The other teams that I like are Italy. Uh, Joel Returnas. Uh, I, I I I was high on them at the Olympics as well. They didn't do they didn't do many favors when I was predicting uh, good things for them there. But uh, I think they're ready for a for a breakthrough. They uh, they played extremely well at the European Championships. They won a bronze medal there. Um, and the other team that, that's quite good that really hasn't, uh, you know, broken through yet is Norway. Uh, very good team. Stefan Wallstadt and his team were, were very close to making the playoffs uh, last year in the bubble. Uh, look for them to, to play well. And, you know, if you're going to make me pick a dark horse, I'm going to throw uh, the Czech Republic out there. They're going to win a few games. <laughs> they're going to have to win all the all the games they're supposed to against the, the teams, you know, kind of at that third level, if you want to call it. And win one or two as well against some of the uh, the tier two guys, but um, you know I think I think for me Italy, U.S., Switzerland, Scotland there would be four teams after uh, the top two, and then as I said, there's it's kind of wide open beyond that. Uh, Korea Korea could upset a few teams as well, um, but uh, you know it's it's uh, it's still the World Championships. These guys are gonna have to play really well. Now, outside of the World Championships, uh, Mike, the one topic that has had many people chatting over the past couple of weeks uh, is the end of the cycle and all the team changes. At the time that we are chatting, very few of the new men's lineups have been officially announced, but several new women's teams have been made public. What is your take on some of these new teams, from Jennifer Jones teaming up with uh, Team Zacharias, Caitlin Law has taken over as Skip for a new team, and, of course, Tracy Flurry joining Team Holman? Well, with Jen and Zacharias, that, that that kind of surprised me more than anything. I, I didn't, first of all, I didn't know if Jen was going to play. I mean, that was my, everyone, that was kind of the big question everyone had, you know, is, is, is that, or was that it for her career at, after the Olympics? But clearly uh, she still wants to play and, uh, and still has, and that's the big thing. Like, you know, Glenn Howard talked about it, uh, you know, seems for a long time now where, you know, as long as you still have the desire, why not keep going? And uh, you know, what a great opportunity for her, for young team Zacharias to to learn from the best right so I think that's that's a fun team to watch I I really like Caitlin's new team uh, Caitlin Laws with Selena and and uh and Jocelyn and and uh Chris McCush so that's that's a that's an excellent team and they're kind of the the next wave you know people don't talk about Carrie Anderson but they've won three Scotties in a row I think I'm just so impressed with them and and how good they are and um <laughs> You know, they, they really it just shows you the depth of the women's game. Even if it, that bronze medal they won last week at the Worlds was just incredibly difficult uh, to kind of get through uh, the playoffs and, and win against these, these these incredible women's teams that are, are uh, from all over the world. So they, they've been so impressive. They're still the team to beat in my mind, but uh, I'm excited to watch Caitlin's new team. I'm excited to watch... Uh, Rachel Holman, the the you know that 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 announcement they're going to make, or the, how how they're going to line up with with Tracy Flurry, that's going to be interesting to watch. Um, yeah, there's lots there's lots of exciting stuff to look forward to on, on the women's side. So one of the things that has always fascinated me when it comes to new curling teams uh, being created, Mike, is how little time and effort they seem to uh, put into gauging whether the 
personalities on these new teams will match well. I mean, at the elite level, most players can make all the shots, right? But the successful teams seem to be the ones that get along, or at the very least, accept their roles fully and then go about their business. However, in talking with many curlers over the years, they typically don't seem to pay much attention to whether personalities will match or collide in the new lineup, preferring to align themselves with the skill sets of the other players and figuring out the mental or off-ice aspect of things as they go along. Do you see this as a potential concern for some new lineups at the elite level, or, or do you think that uh, you know too much is made about uh, what happens off the ice or about team dynamics, and as long as all of the players are making their shots and know their roles on the team, that they can figure out that chemistry and they, they can figure out how to get along with each other to uh, develop into a co- cohesive and successful unit? I, I think I think uh, anyone that's willing to compete at the top level these days, you almost have to be 100% committed. And so I think from, from the standpoint of, you know, I always just say find four like-minded individuals in terms of preparation and, you know, working out and working, throwing as many rocks as you can. I don't think, I don't think there's that same, <clears throat> there won't be much variety when it comes to the level of commitment required, I guess is the best way to put it. So anyone that's willing to commit to the top, five or six teams in the country, um, you know, they, they basically have to be all in. So I think from that standpoint, I don't think you worry too much about it. The question is, is the, the level of maturity and professionalism and trust that you have with your team. And you can build that up over, over the course of a four-year cycle. So I think you have to look, teams have to look big picture and they do have, they do work with sports psychologists and on, on these things. So I think, I think from that standpoint, I think, the teams don't have to look too, too far beyond uh, the, you know, kind of shuffling the deck, so to speak. But I do think, you know, just having the same type of personality, that's another, that's a whole different thing, you know, how intense you are, not intense. And, you know, I, one of my favorite uh, interviews he did with Mark Kennedy, you know, he goes, I just enjoyed how relaxed Brad Jacobs is. And, and we were like, what, what, <laughs> who, who is this Brad Jenkins you're speaking of? Cause you know, he comes across super intense on the ice, but you know, the personalities of, of the athletes change over, over the, over time. And I think, I think the teams do a pretty good job of it, to be honest. I don't, I don't know that uh, that's a big deal. What my big takeaway from this four year cycle was I was surprised how amicable all the breakups were. It's almost like all the top teams decided they're not going to stick together. So let's all release they all sounded very much the same, didn't they? All the releases were, we had a great run for the last four years, happy to have had the great experience with my teammate XYZ. Um, we really look forward to finding new, a new team and we wish everyone the best. All of the teams seem to come out with these, almost the exact statement. So I found that a little surprising. It, it, said, it said it sounded very much coordinated. That's what, what was, what took me, I don't know by surprise is the wrong way to put it, but I thought, you know what? Okay, so the game's kind of gotten to that level now where it's just a business, right? So I think for the most part, uh, it is just that. It is a business, and that's the way the teams look at it. And, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing who ends up with whom. I think the rumors are all out there. You know, uh, our, our friend uh, uh, on another podcast kind of uh, blew the budget for <laughs> quite a few of the teams. But, uh, yeah, regardless of who ends up playing with you, I was, I was pretty impressed with uh, kind of just the, um, yeah, said the frankness and the honesty of a lot of the guys. We're just going to go our own way and, and we'll let the chips fall where they may. 
And finally, Mike, one thing that is noticeable among the new lineups that have been announced and others that have been floated around out there is that there seems to be a lot of old faces in new places as opposed to the promotion of younger talent, except for perhaps two-time world junior champion Tyler Tardy, who looks like he uh, will be playing with an established skip uh, in the next cycle. And, of course, Team Zacharias, who have joined forces with Jennifer Jones. Do you believe that a generation of Canadian curlers might be in the process of being left behind, whereas players on some of the top foreign teams in the world tend to hit the slam circuit and world championships in their early to mid-20s? Most Canadian players do not reach that level, it seems, until their early to mid-30s. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah that's, that's a great point. I think <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't a new problem. Right. This isn't a new issue. We talked about this eight years ago when it was Kevin Martin, Jeff Stoughton and uh, Glenn Howard uh, at the at the trials in Winnipeg who were going in there as the favorite. Brad Jacobs kind of made that little breakthrough. He's he's guy that kind of stepped through the door, um, you know, under the age of 30 and was able to kind of to do something that some of the other teams hadn't been able to do. So this is not a new thing. I don't know that it's detrimental. I think Canada, the depth has always been the strength of the country. Um, what what ends up happening is that at the Olympics, where the pressure is the greatest, I think Canada needs to reevaluate how early they name their Olympic team. So it gives that team ample time. So I don't. I'm not answering your question. I understand, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. You've got, as I say, you got Tyler Tardy's come up, Matt Dunstone uh coming through i i can tell you when we won the trials in 1997 that's you know 25 years ago now we were the youngest team at those trials and i was 30 <laughs> right so think of that that way like we were the youngest team at the at the event uh you know richard and richard and colin so i was 29 no i was 30 i was 30 years old my my lead george was also 30 uh, Richard and Colin were 29 years old, and we were at that time, 25 years ago, we were almost 30 years of age. So, not much has changed since then. So, if you can get to the trials at that age, and 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 you know, I think you've done something pretty special. It's we just, it's not a reality here in Canada that you're going to have a 23 year old unless they're a real phenom like Tyler. Tyler's a real phenom, so he's got a chance. Like I said, you know, he's if he's going to play with one of the top teams, he's a guy that could win a Briar World Championship in his early 20s. Um, so that's that's a big deal but um, you know Matt Dunstone's kind of the next youngest skip and he's doing it at back end which I love and I think he's that's he's the next great skip in Canada Um, but yeah it's this isn't a a a new challenge for Canada this is an old challenge I think they really just need to reevaluate when the trials are and I think they can do some some real uh, positive work when it comes to the residency issue that uh, everyone seems to be worried about. I just think there's, it's, I think the, the, the rule is written really poorly and um, there's no reason why teams that have continued to play out of one province couldn't just continue to do so no matter where they lived. And, um, you know, I've, I've shared that opinion with many, many people over the last five or six years and um, the rules written poorly, you know, this, this birthright thing makes no sense to me at all. So, um, yeah, I think there's 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 things curling Canada can do, but I I don't think it's the crisis that everyone makes it out to be. I think there's lots of young teams that are trying to get there. I think more events like the Tier Two Challenge would be helpful with the Grand Slams. I think that could be helpful. Get more get more young teams. You know, Canada Cup could run a Tier Two as well. I think of it that way. If curling if it's a curling Canada thing, 
run your Canada Cup, and then also have a tier two. Get get some of those teams, uh, those younger teams, more involved. Lots of ways, lots of things you could be doing. And that does it for this episode of the From the Hack Curling Podcast. A huge thank you to all of my guests, Pierre Charette, Laura Walker, Kirk Myers, and Mike Harris for joining me this week. Also, a reminder that our partners in the Curling Podcast Network are the Two Girls in the Game Podcast, the Curling Legends Podcast, and the Rock Logic Podcast. Please go give them a listen. You will not be disappointed. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.